all of my best stuff has come from tears. All of my best stuff has come from, I'm going to try, but I don't think I can do it really. And why reject that? Why run away from that? If that is actually the magic dust that has brought me to this place, why not just call it what it is? Call it the magic dust. Hello, greetings, salutations, felicitations, welcome and hello and welcome to the feminist present. We are not in the Lewis Carroll universe. We are in a feminist podcast. I am Laura Good. And I'm Adrian Dobb. We're the podcast that uses the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on right now. And what is going on in the feminist universe today, Professor? Well, we're about to close our historic second season. Our historic, historic second season. Thank you making. for putting it that history way. Making. Our history making 2020 second season. And with what I believe in the biz we call a humdinger. <laughs> Is that what we call it? I have no idea. There is no biz that would have someone like me for a member. <laughs> she is an icon. She is an author. She is a moral adjudicator. She is someone whose name I cannot say without swearing or fainting. She is Cheryl motherfucking Strayed. And she talked to me on the Zoom line. I still can't believe she like took our call. <laughs> Specifically, we should say she took your call. This was a little bit your birthday present to yourself. And birthdays came up because it turned out it was a birthday on her end as well. That's right. You had wanted this as, I don't know, like reward to yourself or like a rite of passage. Because like you... You were not okay before this conversation. It, it really doesn't show, but there was a paper bag and some hyperventilation going into this, but you two really had amazing chemistry, I have to say. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to hear you narrate this because like, I only had my own like siloed experience of it. I mean, to give our listeners the backstory a little bit. So like... Cheryl is my Elvis. I mean, Cheryl is someone who I've alternately described as like my Elvis, my Buddha and my Joan of Arc, like all at the same time. Like this is like, this is the person who has inspired me the most in so many ways. It's ironic. What happened when we were planning this interview is I was like, oh my God, if Cheryl can only give us 45 minutes, I just don't trust myself to let Adrian get his questions in edgewise. <laughs> so I kind of like politely was like, Adrian, you know, maybe you set this one out. And Adrian is a feminist man and understood that I was not okay. So he said, okay. was like, well, how can I center my experience in all this? <laughs> I don't think you're thinking enough about me. But then the irony of my being direct and honest with you about that was then I got to the actual interview and I didn't have you to help me support the interview. So I had to actually carry the whole thing myself. And I was definitely like hyperventilating. Like there were moments where I just like, my heart was going to like drop out of my chest. Well, I will say this. This episode, like... Really, this entire podcast makes a very good case for the superfluousness of men. I, I thought it was a really wonderful, a really wonderful conversation. And listening to it, I was like, yeah, I would have fucked this up. Uh, I, this room was better and cooler for me not having been in it. Oh. Uh, which is a melancholy feeling, but one that I think is good sometimes. Male feminism. Yeah. You know, I think most people will know Cheryl from Wild, her memoir, her novel Torch. And of course, her advice column, which there's also a book of it, Tiny Beautiful Things. And there's a podcast, of course, mm -hmm. Sugar Calling, which if you're not 
I mean, who listens to our podcast and is not currently subscribed to Sugar Calling? But in case you're that person, <laughs> fix like, your yeah, life. <laughs> first steps are subscribe to Sugar Calling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the conversation was about making space for writing. Right, mm. was about the guilt that comes with defending your creative space, motherhood, how real life and writer's life kind of mm -hmm. intersect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and many many other things yeah I feel like I feel like it was sort of about like how to make writing a lifelong practice you know and she Very was talking way. about it from yeah. the vantage of her early 50s and I was talking about that both from the vantage of my late 30s and uh and of being a teacher of younger writers which she also occasionally is and You know, it's really funny. As I was listening to the rough cut of this episode, I realized that one anxiety I had in preparing for this episode was kind of being like over familiar with Cheryl's work. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was really eager not to ask what I saw as like the obvious questions that every interview asks her that I've heard her sound a little tired of. Like, hey, Cheryl, did your big toe ever grow back after you lost it on the Pacific Crest Trail? Um, you know, I've heard her answer that question 50 times. So, but I do think in my effort to avoid the obvious questions, I may have like veered a little too far into oversharing from my own life. And like, I was listening to the rough cut and I was like, oh my God, I just made Cheryl my therapist. But I have to imagine she's kind of used to that by now. <laughs> like A lot of people probably interact with her that way. I, I would imagine. And I think that that's sort of our style here. Right? Yes. Look, our tagline is about this, right? Like we're trying to figure out what's going on right now. And that's to some extent about us. And Preach. Yes. We were trying to figure out what the hell is going on right now. And that wasn't easy in 2020. Cheryl was incredibly gracious. And as you were trying to recap her professional biography, I was holding myself back from interjecting things like international bestseller wild. And yes, definitely tiny, beautiful things is a book. And it's it's a collection that's become kind of my go to gift for like graduation presents, or like mm -hmm. you just had a yeah. devastating breakup, and I'm gonna mail you a care package. And One time I like met a girl in a bar who was having a very messy romantic situation. And within 30 minutes of like introducing ourselves to each other, I had like taken down her address and like mailed a copy of Tiny Beautiful Things to her home. You, you walked her to a bookstore. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. No, no, I, I saved her the step of walking to a bookstore and dispatched the book directly to her home. I mean, just efficiency. It's 20. Efficiency, Adrian. Yeah. Well, this was not in 2020 because nobody's been going to bars in 2020, but. That is something I have done in the past. Anyway. Well, all of Staten Island would beg to differ, but that's true. <laughs> the feminist present has not gone to bars in 2020. I miss bars. You know what I miss? I've seen people tweeting about this. I miss acquaintances. Do you know what I mean? I miss like the people yeah. you run into a couple times a year and your relationship never really gets beyond that, but you're genuinely happy to see them occasionally. Yeah. Yeah, I miss that. It's true. Loose There's ties. There's intentionality about, yeah. about Zoom, right? Like... Like, yeah, people you're happy to see and then, like, you will forget that you met them, like, two Totally. Loose ties. Acquaintances. Casual Fantastic. friends. You know, like, the people who you yeah. aren't going to make it a priority to carve out a Zoom meeting with, but, like, you're so happy to run into them. And, like, yeah, yeah. San Francisco is such a small town that I feel like it's full of those loose ties, especially for people like you and I who have lived here for 12 years. 
Oh man, Sister Roma. Remember when we talked to Sister Roma and she was just an angel queen? She's ironically the only acquaintance of mine that I do run into still in the COVID age because she is so all about town. Tells you a lot about Sister Roma, yeah. But that's the thing, right? You don't really run into people on the street as much anymore, even though I mean people are always out and about. It's just like, mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. I guess maybe this is after all a fairly spread out place. I have found, you know, and we're now we're now entering our second lockdown in the Bay Area, which is pretty brutal and hard. And uh, I, you know, had to explain to my kids yesterday that we can't go to the playground anymore, which really, really blows. But I found before that when playgrounds were still in circulation that like San Francisco parents are so desperate for any kind of outing right now that I didn't even have to set up playdates anymore. We would inevitably just run into someone we knew at the playground, (laughs) which was really nice. And then, you know, we would all sort of share primal screams by the swing set briefly before chasing away to find our children. But anyway, life in San Francisco at the end of 2020 is not easy. Yeah. So hopefully by the time our third season comes along, we'll have all been vaccinated. We'll be maybe able to do an episode in person. Wow. Wow. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I can emotionally handle that, but like, that's so like weird. I think we'll all be you during the Cheryl Strain interview. Like, <laughs> like, you'll just like, we'll puddle on the floor or be like, <laughs> no one will have here. any chill. You're here. Ever again. You're actually here. No, it's weird. Cause like, I've talked to you and your voice on this Zoom call more than I've talked to almost anyone else in this year. Mm-hmm. And the idea of I sharing physical space with you, just like, it wasn't a negative physical reaction, but like I had a physical reaction to like, oh my God, are we allowed to do that? You know, like it felt, it felt risky. We'll have to learn how to, how to actually have a conversation face to face. Truly. I have leaned so far into my native agoraphobia right now. Like leaving the house again is going to be really hard. Yeah. And I mean, we should say we have met in person since the lockdown. <laughs> yes, that's true. But yes. I was like in your garage <laughs> looking at like things I was taking off your hand. And like, yes, it was yes. not, you know, we had great repartee, but it was not quality content. No, it was a masked distanced swap meet. Yeah, and it was not quality content, yeah. I say. <laughs> that was the day you came over and I was fully like Zoom ready from the waist up and then just wearing pajama right. bottoms. So I was like wearing like makeup, jewelry and pajama bottoms. That's, that's no, 2020. No judgment. No judgment. <laughs> what does it mean to be a public intellectual today? It means wearing pajama pants and earrings. <laughs> pajama pants. <laughs> Buckles on pants are a thing of the past. They are never coming back, probably. Yes. But yeah, we should tell folks that like we have a season three in the works. We don't have a nailed down, hard confirmed plan for when it's going to reach your earbuds yet. Adrian and I are both navigating some factors in our personal lives. One of them is that my six-year-old is like in the other room right now and like, you know, still doesn't have any sort of in-person school to go to. So that has some audio implications, but we are working on a season three and we are dedicated to bringing it to you. Oh, one thing we should maybe mention, one idea we had was we'd love to do a feminist film club. And so we're thinking the idea is Yes. Tell us a amazing feminist you'd like to hear from about a movie. And it doesn't have to be a feminist movie. In fact, it's almost funnier if it's not. Totally. And we will call that person up and talk to them about this movie. So if you have any nominations for this, you know our email address. I don't know our email email address. address? (laughs) Um, We don't know our email address. uh, I believe our email address is feministpresent at gmail.com. I know that our Twitter handle is at feministpresent. So you can always get in touch with us on social media. 
slide into our DMs. Slide into our DMs, hit a reply. He's at Adrian Daub. I'm at Laura Good. We are not hard to find on Twitter. And I just looked it up and it is indeed feministpresent at gmail.com. But yeah, maybe maybe Twitter is the better way to go. (laughs) Clearly we're not in tune with our Gmail inbox. If you have nominations, we'd love to hear them. (laughs) I do feel like we should reassure people in case they're worried that like obviously Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet is already at the very top of our wish list here. We are kind of centering our thoughts so far on cinema of the 80s and 90s as it interacts with feminism, which is not to say that they have to be feminist films, as you said, but I think we could have a very interesting gender studies discussion of like Leonardo DiCaprio in 1996. Oh, yeah. And I intend to have that discussion. (laughs) I don't think I've ever been as prepared for anything in my entire life. (laughs) I really want to talk about fried green tomatoes. Like, if we have any takers on that. Like, I... Oh, my God. Towanda. I have actually thought about proposing to you that we do... Like, fried green tomatoes is a deep well of nerd knowledge for me. Like, I have layers of research on that text. So... Right, because it's also about, like... It's about about LGBT erasure. It's based on a lesbian novel that was straight-washed for a very successful film that is still super homoerotic. Hello, like, the bee woman, you know? There's just all these images of a woman sticking her hand in a honeypot and then it coming out all sticky and then them sort of, like, smiling wistfully at each other. But no, they're super straight. I don't understand that, and you're gonna have to explain that to me. (laughs) I will explain it to you, Adrian. I will. Anyway, so, yes. Please get in touch with your suggestions for which, you know, do you want to hear Tressie McMillan Cottom oh, on Fried Green Tomatoes? I know I do. I know I do, for example. Whew. Okay, so I know the moment is going to come where we're going to have to take it to the bridge and then people are going to listen to me talk to Cheryl Strait. And right now I'm feeling pretty self-conscious about that, but also really excited and grateful that it happened and that that moment has passed in my life. Well, <sighs> as they tell you at any of the hippie hot springs in Northern California... Just push on through and hop in the tub. So why don't you join us and just hop in the tub? Is that what they tell you at the Hippie Hot Springs? I I would imagine so. (laughs) It's good advice. Okay, well, please enjoy Adrian's fictional transition. Take it across the bridge with us. Thank you for joining us for this season in 2020, a a year where free time and new interests have been hard to find the energy for. Thank you for taking some risks with us and uh, stay tuned for what's next. Stay tuned. I'm at my office. I mean, like an office, like away from home. And for the first few months, I felt so guilty because I was like, oh, you know, I'm so selfish. Like I get this office and and then the pandemic came and I'm like, thank God I did that. Thank you, past Cheryl. Yeah. <laughs> so selfish for a best-selling author to want a space in which to work on her work. That's really self-centered. I'm, I'm really disappointed in you, Cheryl. No. And the breadwinner of my family. I mean, that's what's so oh crazy. Oh my God. How could you be more selfish? Isn't that nuts? But like, I actually had to fight that because even though I'm like totally the breadwinner and the mom and all that stuff, and I was like feeling so guilty 
because I finally said, you know what? I can't work in, like, I have an office at home, but it's just a room in our house, you know? And everyone's always knocking on the door and scratching on the door. Yeah, of course. That's their job, right? Right. Well, I feel like that's like an amazing place to start. I wrestle with so much of that fucking guilt that you just talked about. And I think like every woman does. So you already just said a little bit, like you kind of reminded yourself of like what your position in your family structure was and why it was necessary for you to have that office. But like, what do you do in those moments when guilt crops up? Like what sort of self-talk strategies do you find yourself relying on? Wow. It is such a hard one. And it's, you're right. It's like, it's pervasive throughout my entire experience as a mother Mm -hmm. Guilt is always shadowing me. My son is 16 and a half. My daughter is, it's her 15th birthday today. Oh my God, happy birthday. And what I've come to do, the same way with really any kind of negative feeling that crops up over and over and over in my life, the way that I've learned how to manage those things is to say, there you are. I see you. I understand you're deeply rooted in my body and my consciousness. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to let you be the decision maker. I'm mm-hmm. not going to let you rule the way I feel about this or narrate reality. Like the fact is that I'm an incredibly loving, nurturing, good mother. And I work really, really, really hard at loving my family, but also providing for my family. I am Mm -hmm. the breadwinner and, you know, I have a big career and it allows our family to essentially survive, you know? And so when I need to take space for that, when I need to do something like travel for work, Mm -hmm. get my own office, finally at the age of 51, I got my own office away from home. I'm going to, at the end of the day, feel okay with that. Even though I have to actually, to get to that place, I have to fight off all those guilty feelings. You know, it's a sad thing. I think it's the only way to explain it, as you probably know, Laura, is like internalized sexism. Like we internalize the patriarchy. Cheryl, 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 Cheryl. Yes, yes, we do. So allow me like to take it across a little like memory bridge back to the early 2010s. So the year I think is 2010. I too have just rented my first office outside my home for $125 a month at the San Francisco Writers Grotto, where lo and behold, by sheer coincidence, I happened to have an office across the hall from two guys named Stephen Elliott and Isaac Fitzgerald who were running a small magazine called The Rumpus. I know it well. I think you do. An online magazine. A small scrappy online magazine. And I fell in love with this column called Dear Sugar, like spoiler alert. And one day at a, I think it was like a happy hour kind of time of day, I was like chatting and having a beer with Isaac. And this was like way before Isaac was like Isaac, right? You know, like this was way before a lot of things that have happened since. And I remember just sort of in this very confidential like way, like I need to tell you a secret, Isaac. I was like, this Dear Sugar woman, like I think she's from Minnesota. Like, I get a very Minnesota vibe from this woman. Like, who is she? And I I was fully expecting Isaac to, like, fight me and be like, I can't tell you that. It's a secret. Isaac took, like, one sip of beer and was like, it's Cheryl Strait. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Isaac is going to be in trouble for that. Oh, we're going to tag him. We're going to tag him. Yes, yes. So so Isaac is a blabbermouth, but I was very glad that he gave me something to Google, and that led me down this road of sort of putting together the pieces of your anonymous and your credited work, right? And and sort of observing some of the similarities between those two. 
Anyway, that is a long way round of saying that I've been thinking a lot about a particular Dear Sugar column called How You Get Unstuck, which I'm sure you get asked about a lot. And there's a phrase in that column that I've never been able to get out of my head as either a writer or now a teacher. And that phrase is unconditional positive regard. Mm. So I'd love to hear you talk, I guess, about how that phrase came into your life, what it means to you, and whether you see it as a feminist value. Mm, That's a great question. How it came into my life is when I was 29, I got a job working for a nonprofit organization here in Portland, Oregon, where I live. And it was as a youth advocate working for a girls leadership group. Our goal was we were in these hard hit middle schools where lots of the kids lived in poverty and in very difficult circumstances. And our goal was to prevent pregnancies among the girls, because Mm -hmm. what the research tells us is you really need to start with middle schoolers because a lot of them are actually becoming sexually active at that Mm -hmm. age. And if you can do pregnancy prevention early on, they're also, even if they're not sexually active yet, you know, prevent those pregnancies that would happen once they get to high school. So I worked with these girls. And one of the things my coworkers told me, the other women who were youth advocates is that we, that we hold all the girls with unconditional positive regard, that there is Mm. this sense that no matter what they tell us, no matter what things that might be seen as failures in their lives, like they're doing poorly in school or they get in trouble or they get suspended or they have something to report to us from their home lives that doesn't, Mm -hmm. that maybe might not be so pretty, that we always hear those stories or embrace their situations or their realities with a lot of respect and warmth and no opinion, no judgment. Mm -hmm. I think so much that the way we're so familiar with reacting to other people is like, well, what do I think of that? You know, what do I think about your choice to do X? What do I think about your choice to, you know, be a 14 year old girl and have a relationship with a 20 year old guy? Mm -hmm. Like that, for example, was something we came up against. What do I think about the fact that you've decided not to hand in any of your homework, even though you're clearly smart. Mm-hmm. So many of the other adults in their lives are reacting with opinions and, and sometimes mm. it's appropriate to react with opinions. But my role in their lives was to say, I am going to receive you with regard, with affection, with, with a sense of, I affirm your truth. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean I didn't try obviously to nurture them and guide them and offer them positive avenues or try to impact them in terms of making better choices for their lives. Of course. I never forgot that. I never forgot that feeling. It's almost like you say, okay, I'm going to take myself out of the equation so that I actually can be all the way in the equation that I can Mm -hmm. actually with Mm -hmm. my full heart Mm -hmm. and all of my intelligence be in this relationship that I'm not going to have an agenda. I want you to do this. I want you to succeed. So you need to do this, this, and this. It just doesn't fruitful. It wasn't the way we worked with the girls. We advocated Mm. for the girls from the inside out, like beginning with where they were. And so when I do that later in my life, when I did that in my work as sugar, people were so struck, I think, by what they often described as empathy, right? Radical empathy. That's what unconditional positive regard is to say, Mm. I can hear you. I am not going to try to put up a wall or, you know, reinterpret what you're offering me. I'm not going to judge you. And, and Mm -hmm. so it it just opens, it's a very liberating thing to both the giver and receiver. And it opens up the ability, I think, to really hear people and to meet them where they are. 
You're so right, because it's such a different thing. I'm thinking through the lens of my life as a teacher right now, although this is also super applicable to writing in any number of ways. But it's so much easier to be like, okay, in order to fix your life, you need to read tiny, beautiful things. You need to drink three glasses of water a day. You need to get eight hours of sleep and you need to call this person, right? It would be so much easier to give that kind of prescription than it would be to be like, I trust you to know what's right for you, you know, and I'm here to be an affirmative reflector who is going to generally approve of you, like reflect positive things back to you. Like that's actually much harder to do. And I'm glad you brought up how that um, duality exists in Dear Sugar, because from my perception, it's something that also very much pervades your position as a writer. But I would be curious to hear whether you think that sort of viewpoint of unconditional positive regard has like radiated to other places in your life. Yeah. And it began before sugar. I mean, that's the thing that was really interesting to me, just being on the inside of becoming sugar. Sure. People were like, you have such empathy. And And I was like, oh yeah. Like, and when they would ask like, how do you do that? I was like, I don't know. It's just who I am. Mm -hmm. And so all of my books, you know, starting with my first book, it's a novel torch and then onward to wild. And, you know, I I just, and and who I am as a person and a public speaker. And, you know, I wasn't like trying as sugar to become something I wasn't. I was actually Mm -hmm. trying to express the deepest truth of who I am. And I think I wanted to say too, like that example you gave where you you say, sometimes you want to give a friend advice, you know, read tiny, mm-hmm. beautiful things. Mm-hmm. By the way, that's advice I agree with, Laura. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, drink water, sleep well. Like, you know, I think that unconditional positive regard can actually contain advice. What, sure. what it's to me about is, is they're reframing your intentions when giving mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think it goes back to agenda, like to really be thinking like, you know, to remind yourself that you don't have an agenda. What your agenda is helping this person find their way to Mm -hmm. things that will make them stronger. Sometimes it is gentle advice, but it's from the, it's always from the perspective of what it is that they need, not not what it is that you want them to be or do or become. Mm -hmm. I do think that that mindset is everywhere in my work. How does that refract into parenting? Wow. Well, (laughs) I just decided to start with the softballs, Cheryl. You know, we decided to start easy. You you know, and you're asking me, like I said, my kids are 16. I have a son who's 16 and a daughter who's 15 today. And back when my kids were toddlers, my kids are only 17 and a half months apart. And so when they were babies and toddlers, like it was so intense and so hard. And, you know, I went years without sleep. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I just thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to look back at this time and be like, how did I survive it? And then now here I am in a different time, a really different time, the teenage years. And I've never been through anything more humbling in my life. Mm -hmm. And the lesson I keep learning over and over again is, is honestly one that I learned back when I was working with the teens when I was 29. And that is at the end of the day, like we are each responsible for our lives. We are each responsible for finding the courage and the motivation to move forward and to seek the things that will bring us love and beauty and truth. And what I get to be as the parent of these teenagers is is really having to very humbly step down and accept them for who they are and trust that they will, like you and me and so many people we know, find their own path. 
And so, yeah, there are times that I feel like I want to not be the unconditional positive regard mom. For sure. I want to be like, no, you know, your GPA matters. How are you going to get into college if you, you know, (laughs) and then I have to be like, okay, calm down, Cheryl. You know, the higher self can step in here and trust that part of what both of my kids are going to have to learn is doing things the hard way, you know, failing, making mistakes, having regrets. And just putting my arms around that. So much of my path is is full of that stuff. And of course, every parent wants to keep their kids from having any of those negative experiences. And I can't. Of course. It's been about surrender and humility and accepting them for who they are, where they are. I mean, like you, I have two children and it would be like presumptuous of me to be like toddlers are exactly like teenagers because of course I have no idea what it's like to parent teenagers yet. But that does remind me my sons are two and six. And especially with the two-year-old, Sometimes the project is letting him touch the hot thing so he learns not to touch it next time. And sometimes the project is literally like body blocking him from running into traffic. And it can be so hard to tell the difference sometimes. You know, like I used a very literal example, but it's actually very hard to discern sometimes where you need to intervene and where you need to let them learn their own lessons. And I have to imagine that gets even harder when they hit adolescence and the stakes get higher. Yeah, it's it's really... It's fascinating. When you were just talking, I was remembering my son Carver, when he was maybe four, we were in the backyard and he was doing that thing that kids do, or, you know, maybe it's three or four, he's just pointing to things, table, chair, grass, you know, he's just naming all the things. And he points at the like Weber barbecue grill we had outside and he said, hot. And I realized that in my wanting to protect him, I had actually taught him the wrong thing. So he thought that the grill was called hot. So he didn't associate like, no, hot is actually a sensation. It's, you know, you don't want to touch it because it will burn you. He was just like, oh, it's called a hot. And so in, in, in protecting him, I'd actually not protected him at all against the truth of what that was. It's a grill that can sometimes be hot. But like, what a subtle distinction that is. Like, you know, I see so much success of parenting in that story. And yet, like, you're right. Like, he didn't quite get the right message. It's so complicated. Right, right. He didn't get the message. And and it was because I was so protective that I t- taught him like the wrong thing. And, and, and he, in the only way he would know actually what I meant by hot is to touch the fire, (laughs) you know, maybe not literally, but at at least in some metaphorical way. You have to let them burn their little hands sometimes and it's excruciating. Yeah. So there's danger. There's also just investment in self, like your Mm. decision to see something through for yourself. I really want my kids not to perform because the adults around them congratulate them on performing. You know, why do you... Why do you earn an A? Is it because you want to please your teachers and parents? Or is it because you want to do your best? And of course, every parent wants it to come from the kid. But the only way to get it to come from the kid, I think, is to really give it to them and let go. And that's what I'm doing right now. I'm trying to step back and trust that everything I've given my kids will mean something to them and that they will go forth on their own strength rather than my sort of wishes for them. Mm, The word. I think so much about what you were just talking about. You mentioned grades specifically, and like, I am literally a teacher. So this is something I deal with in a literal sense. 
But I'm also like in my capacity as a completely amateur psychologist with no qualifications whatsoever, I'm developing a pretty comprehensive theory of like the psychology of the overachiever and working at Stanford University is like a really great test case for all of this. And one of the things that I have noticed that pertains very much, I think, to what you were just saying about not wanting your kids to like be working all the time to impress you or impress anybody else is how much the students that I encounter have been trained very successfully to give that performance all the time. And how much harder it is in my capacity that I like am so blessed to be in to teach feminist literature at Stanford. You know, like I'm just not interested in their performance. Like I don't really want to know what they think is going to impress me. What I genuinely want to know is what brings them to a state of like joy and authenticity. Mm-hmm. And I swear to God, Cheryl, sometimes I say shit like that to Stanford students and they look at me like I have like seven heads. They're like, what the fuck are you talking about? What is going to be on the exam? Like, can you just please give me like the tip sheet? And I'm like, I have no tip sheets to give you. (laughs) There are none. So anyway, I don't even know if there's like a question in there. I'm just saying this is something I think about all the time is like, how do we, as people who advocate for young people, either as parents or teachers or whatever, like, how do we give these young people a different kind of training to prioritize what I call in my own writing practice, like a state of joy, play and flow, right? Where you forget how much time has gone by and you're fully present and like occupied in the task. We don't have training for that, do we? No. And I would say in some ways we kind of train against it. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I see this every day and it scares me. It is. I mean, even like grades, I mean, and I don't know the answer because of course, but like one year my son went to a school without grades and I thought that was going to be a really great thing. Cause I was like, I think grades are such an artificial assessment of the work you do or who you are, or what you, how you applied yourself or not. I've seen my kids barely do much at all and get A's and then work. I mean, you know, it's, it's just not an accurate gauge really. No, it's not. And yet this other school that didn't have grades, it was like, we spent the whole time being like, okay, so very good is the equivalent of a B. (laughs) Right, 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 right. We're so locked into that. But, you know, I think that the way we do training for it, honestly, when I reflect upon my own life and think about like, how did I actually learn resilience, strength, integrity, seeing something through for its own good, because I said I would see it through regardless of whatever assessment I'll get at the end or congratulations or whatnot. All of that I learned by enduring things that were difficult to endure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, even if I had to sort of resist it at first, finding a way to persist and be resilient. And, you know, I think that that's so, it sounds so nebulous. It's like, how do you bring that into the school system? I don't know. How do you bring that into the educational system? I, I do think though, that there's a real problem with this idea of, what a successful learner looks like. It it does look like somebody who gets to go to Stanford, you know, and those people who are, you know, have really put so much emphasis on achieving in that way, mm-hmm. very often have done it based on a kind of performance anxiety, essentially. Like I need to perform to feel like I'm a worthy person. And what happens then is everything's outside and nothing's inside. I never oriented my kids in that direction. Like I never... Mm-hmm said, you have to get A's. I always said, you have to do your best. And I think that even just that, like there is a difference between getting an A and doing your best. Yeah. So, and it's a feminist issue too. Like, I think that women 
are made to perform more than men. Girls are made to perform more than boys. And by perform, I mean, do something because it pleases somebody else, Mm -hmm. because it meets somebody else's standards of the way you should dress or look or act or think or speak or write. If I could actually just like take a little nerd detour into feminist theory from what you just said, you actually just gave like almost the textbook working definition of what emotional labor is as defined by the sociologist Arlie Russell Hochschild. Like in the last couple of years, this has become such a buzzword that people have started to interpret it to mean domestic labor or, you know, chores or all these things. But actually in, in Hochschild's original definition, it's exactly what you just said. It's acting in a different way than you feel, right? Mm-hmm. And this is what is demanded of, of women and girls all the time, right? To act as if many things are okay with you that are not okay with you. And if we're tying this back to like an academic construct, just using myself as an example, like I think for some people, productivity is a kind of trauma response and overachievement is a kind of trauma response, usually because you have some sort of situation in your childhood that you don't want to be in anymore. And you can perceive education as a kind of upward mobility to get out of that, right? So your ticket to get out of whatever it is that you need to get out of is to win the next 10 things, get the next 10 scholarships, publish the next 10 books. And because this behavior continues to be rewarded by all of these structures and institutions, we start to interpret that as success. Does that make sense? Like this like totally amateur theory. And so like, this is something I've had to spend so much time like unthreading within myself. It's really painful to see 20 year olds performing it in it's like rawest, most unexamined form for me. So I feel like that's a lot of why I've thought about this so much is I, I relate to it very much. Yeah, I think that I wonder, do you have them write creative work? Do you have them write work about themselves or express their own feelings as well as ideas? I do. I mean, the way I, at least in the class I'm teaching now, which is the evolution of the feminist first person essay, 2000 to present, which is like my dream class and is like a joy in every way. Um, the way I assign writing assignments is generally in the framework of like, I would like you to respond to these texts. You can respond to it in a way that compares them to other texts that does a close reading of the language or that connects the represented experience to your own lived experience. So I kind of give them an option to do that. And it usually happens that over the course of the quarter, the papers I'm getting in week one and week two are like extensively work cited, you know, research papers. And then by week five, I start getting like the personal essays that are like what they're really in the class to talk about. So I I try to give them the leeway to kind of do both. That's so cool. You know, I think it's an interesting thing too, that there is this hierarchy of what's considered intellectual work or what's considered like real work versus just like, that's just your feeling. Yes. You know, as a writer, I experience this a lot. Like I write about our emotional terrain. I write about our emotional lives and that's like low art. That's woman. That's like woman stuff, right? right? Feelings. Right. 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 And, but if I were going to write about like ideas, like that's considered high literary, you know, and I don't, I reject that. I reject that, but I see it. And every woman writer, maybe not every woman writer, so I can't speak for them all, but a lot of women writers. And certainly I have experienced over and over that sort of assumption that I'm writing for women because I am a woman and, you know, that really this is a kind of 
on the margins kind of thing rather than sort of central to literary endeavors. And, you know, I think that there's maybe that's happening with your students too. Like the real work is the ideas, the work cited, the academic the stuff. Data-based, peer-reviewed, evidentially supported. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like they're goofing off if they write that personal essay. And yet probably the first time they wrote something like that, that personal essay was probably the hardest labor they ever did when it came I'm to saying. their also, academic work. I triple underscore to like everything you just said. And I would add to that, these students have literally never met me in person, right? We're doing all of this over Zoom. So like, imagine the courage it takes to write a personal essay about like an incredibly personal subject and send it to someone who you've never met who has the power to evaluate you. Like, that's one of the bravest things I can think of. Like, it would be absurd to me to devalue that beneath something that has a long work cited page, you know, like that, like, what do we classify as work or hard work, I think is intrinsic to what you were talking about and what I was talking about. And that is very central to, I mean, so much of this is not only gendered, but racinated too, you know, like if we are only prioritizing evidence-based conclusions, then what do we do with like the generations of African-Americans who were never documented in any significant way in this country, right? Like, that just doesn't, it doesn't track, right? If the only documented experience was the white male, as is true in many, many, many things, you know, right? <laughs> we know this. And so what happens to the stories that were left out of the narrative? We write ourselves back into it. We write ourselves into it. We were there all along is the answer. <sighs> you know, it takes a while for that to really sink in and change the world. I'm like so mad at myself that what I'm thinking about right now is Zoom dick, but what I'm thinking about right now is Zoom dick. And I guess what I'm thinking about it is the way it like juts into everything and like interrupts everything. And, like, juts in. The, I like it. Do you know what I mean though? It's like, there has been so much chatter on Twitter this week about the Zoom dick incident, you know, hot take after hot take, defense after counter defense, you know, like witty tweet after witty tweet. And what it all does is it takes up an awful lot of space in the cultural discussion when a whole lot of other really fucking important things are happening. My children have not been to school in person since March, 2020. Like, and we're talking about fucking Zoom dick, like some guy who can't wait to masturbate until the conference call is over. Like, I, I again, I have no question, but I, I'm just like noting how that intrusiveness tends to exist too. Yeah. And I'm also, you know, what I've really grown really tired of is the endless dick scandals that are interpreted as scandalous. So here's what I think when we learn about a man in power any man who behaves badly sexually, whether it be masturbating on Zoom or sleeping with interns or, you know, fill in the blank. Every time these stories come to light, like you say, they take a lot of space, they take a lot of air. We have all these conversations and we act as if it is scandalous. We act as if it is a surprise. Remarkable. Yes. What I've come to understand is this is how men have behaved through all time because they've gotten to only in very, very recent history that we're even actually openly uh, disputing whether or not they have a right to behave that way. You mm -hmm. know, it was in, in extremely recent history. It's like, yeah, well, he's Harvey Weinstein or he's Donald Trump or fill in the blank. You know, he's a man with power. And so he gets to use it by basically acting out sexually. Right. 
And so that's, that's an old, old ancient story. And instead of basically just saying, this is what we actually expect, we're not going to be surprised by it. We waste all this time talking about the scandal instead of really focusing on making new stories about the new way that we want there to be power in the world. And it isn't through, it's not dick power. I'm not putting that very well, but what I mean is, you know, it, exactly what you're saying. It's like, why are we fascinated by this? Why are we interested in this? It's just a dick. He behaved inappropriately. He lost his job. Onward we go. You have a really incredible talent for vision and revision, by which I mean seeing yourself from multiple angles in multiple periods of your life throughout your nonfiction work and also through your fiction work. And I'm curious as we are in this inflection point of 2020, where white women are in some way like having a really complicated year in terms of like reckoning with ourselves, reckoning with our mistakes, reckoning with feminism's mistakes, reckoning with white feminism's mistakes. I'm happy to share some of what's been going through my head, but I'm really curious to hear like what stories about yourself and about white womanhood you are retelling or re-examining this year to yourself or to others. Well, so much, you know, I think that for me, just constantly remembering that all of these things, everything we talk about when it comes to gender, everything we talk about when it comes to race and class, these are values that we were steeped in all of our lives. And so the corollary of that is it takes, I think, a lifetime to unsteep. Is unsteep a word? I don't know. It's a word. Cheryl Strait said it. That's right. To undo the things that we thought we knew or the things that we thought were true I remember when I was an undergraduate at the University of Minnesota, I took Women's Studies 101. I ended up double majoring in Women's Studies in English. I remember when it was called Women's Studies. Yeah, yeah. Back in the day, yeah. It's something else now, but yeah. it's gender studies, right? At Stanford, it's feminist gender and sexuality studies. It's variations of that other places, but less generally Women's Studies. I was a Women's Studies minor too. But so this was Women's Studies 101. And I read this list. I think it was Peggy Ornstein. It was like privilege. It was like, it's Peggy McIntosh, the invisible knapsack of privilege. Peggy McIntosh. Yeah. yeah. Published this, you know, what is privilege list. And it blew me away, you know, because I was this white kid who grew up poor in Northern Minnesota. And I was just basically being born into the world and trying to figure out like, who am I and what is the world? And I read about privilege and I learned about privilege and immediately I felt opened up and undone and liberated, liberated from, I guess, that unknowing place that I was in before. And I think that what has happened throughout my life is having that experience over and over. And especially again, here we are again in 2020, just this ever increasing sense that I need to continue to go deeper and deeper and deeper in Mm. examining privilege as a white person. And examining complicity, I mean, by virtue of my privilege, complicity in something I absolutely reject in white supremacy. And how can I revise? I love that you notice that I'm constantly revising this story, the trajectory of my own life to stay awake and to better Mm -hmm. serve Mm -hmm. the mission of ending patriarchy 
ending white supremacy, creating a more just and equitable society when it comes to economics and money and resources. And it's not like you get to one day show up at the march or one day take a women's studies class or one day read a book about racism and then you're you're done. It's continuous and ongoing. And it's not a burden. It's it's actually a blessing to get to do that yes, and to stay open yes. to it. Thank you. Yes. Yes to all of that. And it's also like you and I as white people are also so harmed by white supremacy. Totally. This is obvious in some ways, but it's just not obvious in other ways that like the system harms everybody. And I guess here I have to take it back to Minnesota because you and I are just both from there. And uh, I'm really curious to hear your reaction to this summer in Minneapolis. I can tell you that my reaction was one of deep weariness and like both kind of a simultaneous gobsmackedness like oh my god I can't believe the revolution started in Minneapolis and then also this like complete lack of surprise of like of course it did like this yeah. is, this has been a powder keg for so long in this place very specifically even though that's not the only place but I, I would love to hear your views on our shared home state in 2020. <laughs> well and I think I know what you mean when you say the revolution started but I also I feel like it was like the revolution just reached a sort of more public or, or external yeah, stage. I think you're right. That like you said, like all of these things are building over such a long time. I was thinking about, you know, the statues that have been toppled all over and in Portland too. Every day there's like another statue toppled here. What's fascinating to me is it's like the revolution was ignored by the mainstream yes. for so long. Yes. That it's like, okay, you won't put a statue of an indigenous person next to the statue of this white guy. You won't put a statue of a black person next to this pioneer or, you know, whatever it is. And so, okay, finally, it's gotten to the point where we're just going to have to knock those statues over. You know, we, we have spoken and asked and waited and we will wait no more. And that is the feeling I get about the moment that's now, but it's a long time coming you know, and it's just like in the civil rights movement in the 60s, it was finally after years of people organizing and trying to make change and not being heard, things exploded. And then here we are again. You know, I talked to Margaret Atwood a month ago or so. I interviewed mm. her about her new book and I was so cheered by something she said. She's like 83, 81, 82, 83 mm -hmm, now. Mm -hmm. So she's lived through a lot of these movements firsthand. And, and she said to me, oh, I just feel like what's happening right now in 2020 about racial justice is so hopeful because mainstream white people in America are part of it and listening. And I do feel like that that gives me hope too, is obviously the crimes against George Floyd and so many black Americans are absolutely devastating and horrific. The hopeful piece is that it's not only communities of color who mm -hmm. are outraged. White America has also stepped in and said, mm -hmm. we are with you, Black Lives Matter. We are there at the protests. We are also toppling those statues. And it's been a really tumultuous year. But you know, as in any kind of personal change or social change, things have to be really hard, I think, in that transition period before they start to get better. I feel that so much. And I feel it too... I've been getting a different kind of call from home in the last couple months from various friends and family who, I'm not going to say they've just discovered racism existed, but have certainly had a new awakening that they have a different measure of accountability for it now. Yeah. And 
I know that there's some people, you know, many black people and people of color would be like really frustrated to get that call, you know, like would be really exhausted by the prospect of someone just now coming to an awakening about that. And that is more than fair for other people to feel. And in my position as a white person, I'm so happy to get that call. I'm so excited to get that call. Like that call gives me so much hope and the people that I'm having it with who I didn't necessarily expect to be having those conversations with who are coming into those conversations with like an open-hearted and vulnerable desire to learn. Like, I just don't think there's ever a wrong time for that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I just, that is always hopeful, even if it's hard. Yeah. And that's what I, when Margaret Atwood said that to me, I agreed because it's like, you, I think you're right. I think more white people than ever have woken up. Now, is the work over in a year? No, but no. to see what they couldn't see before, I do hope it's the beginning of some real change. And we've seen like local city governments make decisions based on the issues that this movement has brought up. And I think, you know, we are actually starting to see some change, I hope, on a more systemic level as well. Mm, We're yeah, at the beginning. Well, There's such a long way to go. Deep breaths. Where are you from? Oh, I'm so glad, Cheryl, I'm so glad you asked me a question because I just had this moment of being like, this is so weird, but I feel like I've really been like grilling Cheryl really hard and maybe I should ask her if she has any questions for me. Um, <laughs> I'm from Edina <laughs> and I know all of the connotations. I wrote an entire book about it and that has been really present in my mind. What's you your know? book? It's called Sister Mischief. It's a young adult novel that like, I'm shocked I didn't get canceled for it. I probably still could. I put it out in 2011 and it's about a group of lesbian teenage girls who start a hip-hop group and to awesome <laughs> it's set in like a very obviously like facsimile of Edina but in considering Edina especially this year I have thought a lot about how homegrown all those stories of white supremacy are you know like I went to I've done this research like I went to the Edina public schools and at the time that I attended them in the 90s that school district was 93 percent white and I mean, I feel like Northern Minnesota must not have been more diverse than that when you were growing up either. Well, it wasn't one way. So I grew up in McGregor, went to McGregor High School. Yeah. I, I lived 20 miles from it, but the Rice Lake Reservation is there. So we, oh, the, the diversity right. was really in the form of Ojibwe sure. people who many of them would go away to a different school. But, you know, I, I mean, there was certainly some diversity in that way. It wasn't like it was all white, but yeah, there's so much I look back on just the absolute racism of the student body, but also the teachers. Yeah. And also because most of the people I grew up with are poor or certainly, you know, what used to be called working class or middle class. Mm -hmm. And so there was always a rejection of any kind of consciousness around like how race might make things harder because so many people, we see this today, so many white people who are poor have really legitimately hard lives. And the piece they're not understanding when they don't understand it is that you know, okay, but your life isn't hard because of your race. Your life is actually made right. easier. Uh, right. That doesn't mean your life is easy. And I think that that's a very complicated thing for people to understand people who are living in struggle. And yet I think, I don't know, I'm, am I being too optimistic? Do I think some people are getting that message who didn't before? And I think it's because of the huge response that we've seen this year. You teach at Stanford in 
the what's the department you're in? Feminist Gender and Sexuality Studies, FGSS. And did you go to Stanford too? I sure didn't, Cheryl. I went to Columbia for both undergrad and my MFA continuously, and then I spent. 10 years as a struggling freelance writer and I published uh-huh. a book and I made a movie and then in July 2019 I got like the weirdest phone call of my life from a dean at Stanford offering me a job and here we are. Nice. Yeah, I know. It was really great. I'm pretty psyched about it. <laughs> but it's it's also I mean, I'm going to be really honest. I have never battled imposter syndrome this hard in my life. Like I have to wrestle it to the ground every day, partially because I'm in this environment where these traditional modes of sort of data-based like grades driven achievement are like very highly valued. And that's, you can look at my resume on paper and definitely see some glimmers of that. Like more than a few, I went to an Ivy league school, but it's just not where I'm at in my life and my values now. So anyway, I live in this sort of constant duality between like feeling incredibly insecure that I don't have a PhD and also feeling really grateful that I didn't come from like a traditional academic path yeah. where school is all I've ever done, you know, not, which is not to throw shade at those people at all who are like my brilliant colleagues, but it would, yeah. would have been the right path for me. Yeah. You know, I, I remember learning about imposter syndrome a long time ago and learning about it in the context of here we go again, here's another mm-hmm. example of ways in which basically to be a woman in the sort of professional realm is to always feel like you've got to sort of justify your place or, you know, that you don't deserve to be there, that you feel like you're a fraud to some degree. And Mm -hmm. I think that that is absolutely true. And it's totally because of the way we've internalized our worth as women. Of course. But on the other hand, I've been thinking about it a lot when it comes to my own work and how hard it is for me when I'm writing to feel like, Mm. wow, you know, this is, this is important work. Everyone's going to want to read it. And I realized that like, I'd always been sort of thinking like, oh, it's terrible that I feel like an imposter when, when actually you can see, you know, I'm able to write and I'm successful. And like that somehow this imposter syndrome thing inside of me is something I should fix because it's a sign Mm. of weakness or a sign that Mm -hmm. I've internalized something that I should work on pushing away. And just in the last few weeks, actually, I've been thinking, what if we did the reverse? What mm. if we said, actually, one mark of achievement is to have the kind of humility that all the days of your work life, you actually are always still thinking, I've got to earn my place. You know, I've got to do the good work today. I'm not going to rest on those past markers of external success let's say I did get rid of my imposter syndrome. So then what? I'm the arrogant writer who sits down and thinks that I'm brilliant and that everyone should read what I have to say. Like like the flip side of the imposter syndrome actually sounds awful to me. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it's like, I like your humility. I like that you're like, you know, I'm just going to do my best. I'm going to give what I have to give. And I can see that I might fail. And like, that is so much more interesting. Like what if, what about that being the feminist model of yeah. achievement that we say, okay, dudes, come on over to us. This is how real creative work gets done is that we do it not from arrogance, but from humility and hunger. In the soup of uncertainty on the floor with the Flannery O'Connor, you know, quote on the whiteboard behind us, like the shitty days add up to something, the shitty yes. waitressing jobs, the hours spent writing in your journal. Yes. Yes. Sorry, Everything like, good yes. that I've made has been born of that. In, yeah. in my professional life and in my 
and my mothering. I know we started mm-hmm. talking about mothering, but you know, mm-hmm. it's like, did I do everything exactly right? No. And, and there's no way to do that. There is no exactly right. You know, no. No. and so and to, to embrace yeah. that humility, I think is really actually very, very key to our ability to succeed. And mm-hmm. I would rather rewrite the narrative of like what that even means, because I do think that if we embrace it, it's actually in our favor. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I completely agree with you in terms of how we create a soft spot for ourselves to write from. But I also think that this ties in addition to that, not in competition with that. I think it also ties back to what we were talking about with performance. You know, like if I don't want my students to feel obligated or anyone, my children, my friends, whatever, to feel obligated to perform for me, then I too have to lay down the fucking performance and like get vulnerable, right? And like admit that I feel insecure, admit that I wrestle with imposter syndrome, like admit that I you know, all kinds of fears and vulnerabilities. And I think what your work reminds me over and over again is what an invitation that is to just get messy, right? Like how much light that sheds in a way that invites other people to be that kind of authentic. I mean, and that is just like such a tremendous gift you've given the world, Cheryl. I mean, I hope you're just really proud of yourself. (laughs) What a weird thing to say, but I hope you have enjoyed that. (laughs) You're so sweet. (laughs) Yeah, I really, I genuinely am a believer in like the most powerful things come from the messiest places. And, And because of patriarchal thinking because we try to avoid emotions that that's a sign of weakness or if you feel insecure that's a sign of weakness if you cry that's a sign of weakness you know Mm -hmm. all of those things are wrong all of my best stuff has come from tears Mm -hmm. all of my best stuff has come from I'm gonna try but I don't think I can do it really Mm. and why reject that why run away from that if that is actually the magic dust that has brought me to this place, why not just call it what it is? Call it the magic dust. Don't call it something that I have to heal from. And, you know, I think that the seed of what I'm saying, like that there's something that really can translate across professions and translate into this thing we were talking about with education, you know, and how to get students to feel like they're invested in their work and they're not performing their work. It's about that. It's about embracing the, the fear, the the sorrow, the struggle, mm. and privileging it over the certainty and strength and clarity. Mm. Mm. What do you consider to be midlife? And what advice do you have as a professional advice giver for a woman proudly and gracefully entering her late 30s? Midlife. I think I think midlife is you know around 45. Damn it. I was somehow born really anti-ageist. You know, I've always hated yeah. it, that people are weird about age, that they're like, oh, you're not supposed to ask a woman how old she is. Oh yeah, fuck that. Yeah. yeah I've yeah, never yeah. been ashamed yeah. of my age and I've only, you know, and I guess that's only been amplified because my mom died when she was 45. And so now For I just sure. think like, oh, you're 50, you're lucky. Don't complain about it, you know? But I, you know, I think middle age, you, you sort of enter it in your like mid forties. Damn it. See, I was really hoping I could get, I could be there. And like, I want to be a part of middle age. There's just something that shifts. I think earlier forties, you still have a foot. I mean, you're on your way to middle age. This isn't like a a dark line, but you know, it's like, you're still like forming. And I think you're always forming at every age. I've learned a lot 
I'm 52. I've learned a lot in the last 10 years, but I think that there's something started to shift in my middle to late forties where I started to feel more and more like, oh, okay. This is like, I'm right here in the middle of it. I'm in the middle of my life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the big things, the big questions are fewer because Mm. I've answered a lot of them. You know, where will I live? Will I have kids or not? You know, and of course I might live somewhere else, but like, where, where is the main action going to happen, you know, Mm -hmm. in in the kind of very active years of my life. But I think that middle age is probably from like 45 to, to 64. And, you know, the thing is about 65, even like, I don't think of that as old age. I just think that you're in that like next chapter where you start to look at like, wow, there's less ahead than there is behind. Right, right, right. I too have always felt highly anti-ageist and sort of out of time in my own generational placement because my mom was 40 when she had me. So like my parents are, for example, like basically the age of my husband's grandparents, right? Like yeah. they're, my parents are like a full generation older than some of the parents of my peers. So sometimes I get questions like, why do you know so many Johnny Cash songs? Yeah, exactly. Oh. <laughs> like, it's just sort of born in a different era without really belonging to that era. I was influenced by old people. I what? I still am, you know, I still am. How are you approaching your process in 2020? Are you writing in 2020? Are you battling anxiety? Like, how is it going for you when you sit down at the page in this like gorgeous new sea green office that I see behind you? <laughs> so 2020 has been a really challenging year, I think, to be a writer because that. it's so yes. hard to concentrate and so hard to focus. And yet... I've had to, because I make my money basically two ways, public speaking and writing. Mm -hmm. And in 2020, all my public speaking just went away. Disappeared. We can't gather anymore. And so not only did I have to write because like, that's my call and that's what my work is, but also just like, okay, I got to do my work because I've got to feed the family and, you know, provide those teenagers. They eat a lot, you know, they do. <laughs> and so I've been writing, like I've had to push through that complete like distraction that has yeah. been this year, my kids being at home and having online school, which has been tremendously difficult. You know, the mm-hmm. worries over the coronavirus and the turmoil, the turmoil, also the civic obligations, the, the activism I've done as part of the struggle for racial justice, the activism I've done around the election, those are all things that have occupied me, but I've also had to work. I've had to, yeah. to write. And so I've been doing that. And it's really been hard, mind over matter, lots of doubt and anxiety and all of that, but I've pushed through. Have you ever watched Elizabeth Gilbert's TED Talk on the elusive nature of genius? Yes. I love Elizabeth Gilbert. <gasps> I know you're like friends with her. Obviously, I have never published a best selling book and had to look at the rest of my life being like, oh my God, have I peaked already? But I do wonder what it's like to write after, you know, you hit, I'm not going to, why would I ever use a sports metaphor with Cheryl Strait? Like I was about to use a baseball metaphor and then I just like my skin crawled away from me. You know, I have seen pictures of you on the red carpet with Reese Witherspoon, right? Like we all know what happened with Wild. And like, how do you find your way back to the page after that? Like, how do you recenter yourself at your desk? How do you find your way back to that? Well, it's hard. I would imagine it's very hard. Yeah. You know, I'm working on a book and I just really need to get it done as soon as possible because it's sort of driving me crazy that it's taken this long, but it's been because with the success of Wild and and Tiny Beautiful Things and Brave Enough. And it's really brought me into the world in a way that I didn't expect. I have an accidental career as a public speaker. I'm public in a way that I didn't 
imagine when I was writing my books, you know? And so that, that those things can be really fun and interesting, but also distracting. And so that's been the hardest thing is like the life that wild brought me has been hard to pull back from so that I can go into the metaphorical cave and write. Yes. But I will say when it comes to the writing itself, it's like it always was, which is Mm. to say hard and full of doubt (laughs) and full of anxiety. Mm -hmm. But like, I love that. I like, I love that I'm not sitting there thinking like, well, now that wild has been an international bestseller, this will be no problem. Like I never believed that. I always knew that every time I write, it's as if, you know, I've got to make the world over again. I've got to make something out of nothing. I've got to make Mm -hmm. a story where a story didn't used to be. And Mm -hmm. that's heavy labor. In some ways, this turn inward that the pandemic has forced, Mm. forced me back into that work, which I'm grateful for. It's a silver lining in this difficult year for me. It's a really wise and mature interpretation. I'm like a little annoyed at how like wise and mature that is, but like, that's fine. That's fine. Are you writing? Like, Do you still write? Yeah, I'm writing right now. I'm I'm working on a long essay that like, do you ever start writing an essay that's like really terrible and really long and really hard and in a sort of dread, you're like, I think this is a book and yeah. I think I have to write it. It's, you do. Well, it's kind of... <sighs> I'm wrestling with myself in that way. So I'm writing a 50 page essay that may or may not be a book and I'm trying to finish a novel also. And it's just, it's, it's hard, but for a really long time in my writing career, before I was at Stanford, I published my first novel really early and that was such a blessing and such a curse. And I was 25 when I signed that book deal. And that was exactly what I thought I wanted, right? Like that was what I had been pushing with all my might towards for my entire life. And then just like, I think every debut novelist, like I got through that and I was like, oh my God, what the fuck do I do next? (laughs) Like, oh my God. And it's been 10 years and I haven't published another book of prose. I published like a very small book of poetry and I made a film and I'm like really proud of both of those things. But I have been pretty open about how much I've struggled with the fact that I haven't published another novel or memoir yet. And I actually have been through the experience of like sending two books through an agent out to editors and having to take it off the market because they just never sold. And that Um, like, that was like the excruciating conversation I had with my agent at the end of 2018. I can't believe I'm telling you this. That's so Um, hard. It's so, it was like, I can't even, it was like the last five minutes of labor hard, you know, and my first baby was nine pounds and like n- no epidurals of any kind. And uh, what I had to do was like go back to the mat after this like crushing failure came in, like my worst nightmare, at least my worst nightmare about my writing career yeah, like, yeah. came to pass. And I had to go back to my desk and be like, okay, Laura, like if you literally never published again, right? Like if it were just not about that ever would you keep writing? Mm -hmm. And I really like asked myself that question like every day of 2019. And the answer was such a resounding yes, that it was like, just not even funny, you know, like, and I could never, this gets back to what you were saying about the most valuable lessons are the ones that like come at a very high price. Like, yeah, I am more grateful for that self-knowledge that I would write no matter what the outcome was, no matter if anybody ever saw it ever again, no matter like if it ever earned me a dime, like that self-knowledge is more precious to me than like any publication ever could be. So now what I do all day is sit in a room, a Zoom room now 
with a whole bunch of like Stanford students and try to convince them that they need to fail more. <laughs> that's true. No, I mean, that's it. Like, it's absolutely true. I know in my own heart, and I know exactly what you're saying, that that you have to get to that place. What I've talked about, what's the measurement of success? Did you do the work? Did you do it to the best of your abilities? Did you give it everything? And if you can answer yes to those questions, then you, you succeeded. And if you can yeah. actually believe that, nothing can take your sense of success away from you. Yes. I am so grateful that Wild was successful and published when I was like, I mean, I wrote it when I was in my early 40s. It was published, I think I was 44. Mm-hmm. I was thrilled by the success, but I wasn't defined by it. I didn't yeah. then think like, okay, that's now everyone loves me. So that now I'm okay. Yeah. I actually was okay. And I, and I was old enough to know and, and seasoned enough as a writer to know that I had achieved something and write in the book, regardless of how the world greeted it. And so, you know, you have to live through that. You know, have to, you have to live through the gritty, difficult yeah. doubt and loss. That's what I mean when I say like, maybe we're thinking the wrong way about imposter syndrome instead of trying to, you know, reject it, embrace it, because it is the piece of us that stays tough, that stays you know, willing to kind of endure the the gritty, gnarly rejection that comes in any life. Yeah, yes, totally. And I find those reminders like strewn all across your work like daily and have for years. But yeah, I mean, if I had to characterize the difference I felt or perceived in myself, it was that like every moment between about 2010 and 2018 was spent just like future tripping, just like thinking like, what's going to happen when I get that phone call, you know, with the good news, like, what am I going to do? Where am I going to be? Where, what am I going to be wearing? Like, who am I going to call next? What's going to happen? What's the Twitter announcement going to look like? How am I going to screenshot like the publisher's weekly deal? Like all of that kind of future tripping was just like spinning like a Roomba vacuum cleaner in my head all the time, (laughs) like a zoom dick sucking up all the like energy and like valuable, like reflective stuff. And when I hit the wall of failure and had to like look that failure in the face and like accept it and like grieve, like I really had to go through a very real process of grief. I came to a place where I was just like, okay, can I like find the joy again? Yeah. Like, is there, could there be joy? Like, could I, could I center that instead? And uh, that's honestly what I've been doing every day for the past year and a half. And like, it's been really up and down all over the place, but like overall, I would say it's been pretty great. And like, you get to that point of self-knowledge and no one can take that fucking gift away from you. Like once you have bled for it in that way, like no one can ever take it away. That's right. You know, I think that that's what it comes down to is like the greatest teacher is life. <laughs> I mm-hmm. mean, you know, but obviously mm-hmm. we go to school for a lot of good reasons, but it's in the end, it's really our own confronting the self, confronting our dreams, our fantasies, disappointments, and going on in spite of them and because of them. Why don't you teach? Do you want a job at Stanford? Like I could make some calls. <laughs> I do teach occasionally. Like I, I do occasional workshops sure, sure. and, you know, but basically what it came down to was this, when I gave birth to my first child, Carver, I actually was in need of a job. Like many writers, I thought, okay, the way to, to financial security is to become a professor. And I'm also, I really like teaching. I think you'd be really, really good at it. Yeah. I mean, it's, I consider it like one of my spiritual practices, honestly, is is teaching writing. So that's why, you know, I do love to do it on occasion, but essentially what happened is I applied for a job at a local, really good college in Portland to be a professor of creative writing or, you know, to get on the path to become a tenured professor. And I was offered the job. 
And at the time, my first book, I'd sold Torch. It hadn't been published yet, but it was in the pipeline. And I had a, my baby was literally like a week old. And I accepted the job. And then I basically said, I can't do this. I can't do three things. I can do two things. Mm-hmm. I can't be a writer, a teacher, and a mother. And a mother. Yeah. I'm a mother. So what I could see is I would put so much into my teaching. And then all the rest of the time would be taking up with my mothering. And then where would the writing be? And I just decided to make the leap of faith and said goodbye to the salary and the health insurance before I even got it. And I turned it down. And so then I kept faith with the writing. And for a long time, that looked like a really big mistake. For the five or six years after that, it looked like my husband and I, my husband's a documentary filmmaker, so does not make much money either. You know, so we were just hand to mouth and uh, really in deep credit card debt and in all kinds of trouble and didn't have health insurance and all the whole thing. And I just kept saying, I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to keep trying. And I wrote wild and it sold. And then my life changed once it was published. I remember, I think it was one of my favorite interviews you've given was with Manjula Martin in Scratch Magazine and later in the Scratch Anthology. And I want to say it was there that you told the story of your rent check bouncing while Wild was a bestseller. Like what a fucking mind fuck that must have been. Yeah, like, <laughs> like my, Wild was literally number five on the New York Times bestseller list. And we had no money. None. We were yeah. renting this little place. I was on my book tour and my husband texted me and said, why did our rent check bounce? And I texted back because we don't have any money. And, you know, we were so, we were selling books all the time at Powell's bookstore in Portland. Cause you know, you bring them in a box of books and you get 20 bucks. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you like the harrowing. And then it, you know, it was just like, because there's a delay before you get the money. You know, it wasn't until like a year after wild was, was out. During that time, Rebecca Sklut, the writer Rebecca Sklut, took me out to dinner and she's like, okay, I know the moment you're in right now. All of your friends think you're rich and you don't have anything, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, yes. Mm-hmm. And she was like, yes, because there's the delay. There was. But so it came eventually. And, you know, suddenly I had financial stability that I'd never had before. But it was, you know, it was a very, very difficult time. But I look back on that decision that I turned away from the safe job. I turned away from that. And, and because I did that, that's what made everything possible, really. I'm not saying that everyone should choose that. I'm just telling you what I did. I think that there's an argument to be made for the other because, you know, probably I could have said, okay, I take that job and I would have had the security and maybe it would have taken me a little longer to write wild, but maybe I still would have written wild. That's the thing about life. You don't know. You, you make a choice and then things happen because of it. Isn't that a beautiful thing? <laughs> The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It is produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas and Isabella Tilly. All our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman that none of us have seen recently, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. And we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues there, Cynthia Newberry, Alison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, and Sarah Mersney. 
The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by The Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're at Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and write us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. We'd appreciate it so much if you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars on iTunes or another platform to help other folks join our discussion.